Hello everyone, welcome to Two Rivers, Two Takes. This is Daryl. And this is Philip. And we have so much to go over. So we had quite the week in terms of Wheel of Time coverage. Um, it is everywhere right now. Ads on almost all the social media platforms that we've seen. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube even. Um, the show is being heavily promoted yeah, and uh, that included fan screenings, and we were out in the D.C. area this past week and had tickets, and it was a pretty good experience. Yeah, and considering we had just flown, we basically dropped our stuff off and hopped on another bus to get up to the screening. Uh, their line was considerable, and just as the wheel weaves, as the wheel wills, the line snaked and sinewed and was like trying to read the pattern it was inscrutable when people would come in and try to find the end of the line it was pretty crazy so the way these fan screenings were set up is that tickets were free you just had to basically register for them and now i'm getting spammed with a thousand emails a day from this company that um, had the passes but it was really cool that Amazon offered these free fan screenings. And since it was first come, first serve, you really had to get in line to make sure that you had a place. And we were there maybe an hour, a little bit more than an hour before it started. And we still ended up being seated in the front row, craning up to see the whole movie theater screen. Yeah, and it was an hour before doors opened, technically, to the theater. So... The screening itself started at 8 Eastern, and the doors were supposed to open at 7 Eastern. We got there a little after 6, and the line was crazy, and we just stood there. But it was really cool to see the range of fans that were coming out. So um, there were younger fans, there were older fans. Like, it's quite a, a, a swath. Yeah. Yeah of age groups that are fans and some people came in um cosplay which was really cool to see their interpretation of the costumes yeah some of it had some folks had the iconic blue crystal on their foreheads so with those who are being moraine i saw a green shawl there uh more than one leather headband for the land mondragon uh cosplayers yeah, it was uh, really cool to see people turn out and um, experience this. We got a free poster. There was a photo op, which we didn't do, but because it was just crazy. And this is the first time either of us have really attended anything like this. And Amazon had their security on lockdown. We had to give up our phones at the door and throw them into a baggie. And we which got... Which unexpected. Yeah, just... Uh, after waiting in line and being on our phones trying to occupy ourselves for so long, then we had to give it up, and then we were second from the front. Um, luckily, the theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, was really uh, great in that it had the reclining seats. So we didn't really have to crane. You just had to lay all the way back in the seat. And after that long day of travel, we were really wondering, can we stay awake in this position <laughs> Um, but luckily, the first two episodes that they showed us were so great that we had no trouble staying awake for them. No, not at all. Um, I 
I hope that a lot of people started spreading the word. That was the big push for this, is that they wanted people to start talking about this on social media using the hashtag the wheel of time and not spoiling anything that was the other thing they really hammered home is that we could not spoil anything we could just give general reactions in our posts on social media so it was very strange having them take our phones away but then also staring at the screen for half an hour as it said share the word on social media it's like well i guess we will have to memorize these hashtags and use them once we get home and once we get our phones back again Yeah, and this was on a Monday night, which isn't really a booming time for the movie industry. So they had multiple theaters going as well. I think we were probably in the second theater that they opened up, but they had to have opened up like a third after that. Yeah, the line was lengthy behind us. And as I said, it snaked around all over the lobby. Hopefully they didn't get in trouble with the fire marshal. But... um... It was, I thought it was well worth it, even after a full day of travel and waking up early. And Yeah, it was a great way to kick off a vacation and a great way to kick off this experience with the Wheel of Time series. So Because we were so excited and it was really neat being around other people who were also excited. And then overhearing little snippets of conversation of what people were hoping for. Uh, one person next to us was explaining to her friend who the characters were, what the basic plot line was. There was even a host, the King of Malkir on Twitter, um, came in full LAN cosplay, gave a little talk at the beginning, and sort of welcomed everyone to the experience. And in the theater, even, there were people who had read the books 20 plus years ago, like I had, people who had just read it during COVID, since the lockdowns, and people who had maybe not read the books at all, but were there for the experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm still working my way through. And when he asked sort of like, who read it 20 plus years ago? And people raised their hands. And then he said, who hasn't read the books? And I raised my hand at that point because I haven't read all of them. He didn't specify what book. Um, (laughs) So um, if you're following along, I just started the fourth book on our flight back home yesterday. So um, I'm, I'm almost to the point where I gave up the first time. But seeing the series and me wanting to know what's going on now and seeing what they may have transferred from other books um, is going to keep me reading. And we know that they're already filming the second season, which is great. That's really good to know as a fan that we have a second season coming already because this really sets up a lot of questions that I have. Um, But let's cover the first episode and dive into our feelings. So I'll walk through some general reactions. I just reviewed the episode again, so it's fresh on our minds. Um, Seeing it on the big screen was a trip. Um, This, it translates really well to a big screen. Yes, it's very cinematic, so no matter what size screen you're looking at, it looks great. Like, it's not like there are parts that only look good on a small screen and you don't notice the background things. The amount of detail from the costumes to the locations to the cottages and the inn was impeccable. Yeah, um, they really went all out when it came to on-location shooting and using that to their advantage. It's just breathtaking when they do some of those faraway shots. So we start with Maureen giving an introduction to 
sort of who the dragon was in a way. I had a I had a little bit of issues with it, but what were your thoughts on that? I thought it was a good setup. I like that um, there's this concept of reincarnation for the dragon, and that doesn't seem to be a factor for um, a whole lot of people. But then later on, when there's a lantern ceremony up at the Elthor farm, uh, it it's referenced that there's this belief that everyone is reincarnated, that not really anyone remembers their past lives. They just keep going as the wheel spins. And that will become more apparent in the books when you start to learn about the the grand heroes that have many lives. Sometimes details will be the same throughout their lives. Sometimes they won't. Um, there will be one in particular that we get to know pretty well, starting about in the fifth book, I would say. Um, but this idea, they, they expanded on it for the series where everyone gets reincarnated, not just the grand heroes. Um, but at least the rules are consistent that hero or regular person, you don't remember what it, you had done in the past. But I do like the optimistic tone of, we hope that the current life improves upon what was learned in the past lives. So that was nice. I enjoyed that touch. Yeah. Then we go to a bunch of uh, women in red chasing down a couple dudes. And this tied into some of my feelings about Maureen's speech at the beginning, where the arrogance of these men to try and lock the shadow and darkness away. How could they possibly have thought that they would succeed? And how the power is only for women. From a red, that makes sense. They are the only ones who can channel safely, so reds see their role as very, we are here to protect the world from men channeling because of the breaking, because of the time of madness when all the male ASA went insane because of the corruption. But the original lore of the boar, which released the Dark One, which started the War of the Shadow, that was both men and women working together. And because Luce Theron was a male channeling the male half of the power, that is what the Hundred Companions used when they locked the Dark One away. So it wasn't necessarily men being arrogant through the power. They were the ones who had done it. They were doing their best. They were at war. And no one could have foreseen the counterstroke and the corruption, which led to Red's having to gentle... Uh, which means to permanently sever from the source um, any men that they could find who would channel. So I'm already getting a bad vibe from this red Aes Sedai and her attitude. Like, it seemed very arrogant and snotty to me. Which is on brand for a red. So that is pretty close to the source material and, as I imagine, the different Ajas and their interactions reds have a chip on their shoulder they haven't been in power for like a thousand years or so within the tower they feel they have this job to do that they don't get much support from the other ajas politically no one really stands with them well i wouldn't stand with them either because um this chase ends when this lead woman brings down basically half a mountain to stop the two dudes who's actually just one dude 
from running because he's hallucinating his friend being there and then we see high above on a perch moraine going down and being like that's not our dude we can go on our way like apparently this person was born around the same time it's just that the reds got there first but moraine was just making sure that this wasn't the person she was seeking and there's so much prophecy around the dragon where if the person who was meant to be the dragon is gentled within the first leg of this journey, epic journey that we're on, there's no way that that could possibly be the person. The dragon would have to be evading the reds long enough to be able to do their job. Something. Right, you can't be the dragon and not channel the power. Sure. So we go from one cliff to another, and... Uh, we get a different group of women that are sitting there, and we see Egwene become a woman, she's officially. Re- she's receiving her braid, the coming-of-age ceremony for women in Emmonsfield, and the two rivers as a whole. Any, everyone in that region, um, every woman, when she's an adult, braids her hair. And, and apparently... It, when you become a woman, you get shoved off a cliff into a swift river. Our feelings were that this was very much like hazing and an introduction to the woman's circle. And apparently, if you survive, you're part of it. But what about the ones that die? I mean, that's my question. It's really framed as um, when she gets back into the village, her dad gives her a hug and says he is so worried. How many women die? And... Is this a sacrifice that they really need to undertake to become a woman? I, I like, not... is it for everyone? Is it just for prominent women? It sounds, from the books, as if the women's circle and the village council for the men, they are there because people respect their opinions. Like For better or for worse, Senbui, not really the greatest person in the village, but he, apparently he has enough ears to sit on the council. So... You would think that these are more elite leadership groups that you have to be invited into, and not just everyone who comes of age must survive this hazing initiation. It seemed really harsh to me. Like, not only the shove into the river, but also that it's really rough. She's going through rapids. Um, Egwene needed a kayak, optimally. To get through this, she comes out with cuts and scrapes. It, I don't know. It, this doesn't necessarily speak to me of is someone needing strength. So if you're coming of age in some societies, especially in um, societies that are back in time like this, or maybe this is the future, who knows, um, the, you need some sort of strength to get through it, be it surviving in out in the wilderness this leaves a lot to chance this is a whole lot of luck that she remembers oh i should just float rather than fight against it it's a very direct metaphor for women who can channel that Mm. they are the banks of the river you don't control the river you can just try to guide it and surrender to the power of it so that surrender that serenity is what Egwene finds after she stops flailing and almost drowning, um, the surrender is what lets her float and safely reach the shore. So it's a very literal demonstration or metaphor of a woman channeling Sadar. 
is it great or helpful? Maybe not. Does it lead to other questions about what the culture is in the two rivers? Yeah, but it does serve a very direct image that viewers can go back to later on when we get more tower scenes, we get more women channeling scenes as a descriptor of what it means to channel the female side of the power. We pivot to the tavern or the inn after that. So we see sort of our bromance group drinking and finishing up some dicing. And it's clear that Matt is bad at it. And he apparently loves stealing. That's something that I... It, all the characters are portrayed as having sort of shades of gray right now. But I feel him openly just stealing later on in the episode and trying to sell it um, to a really skeevy person coming through town. Um, I don't know. That, that struck a bit false to me because there are so many things that Matt was doing to redeem himself also in this episode. It just seemed heavy-handed that he would go around and he's going to, like, steal this bracelet from this girl that he's smooching up against. Yeah, the Matt piece seemed very odd. Like, he should be coming from a horse trader's family. Like, otherwise in the books they're more well-off. They he doesn't necessarily start gambling until later, and the idea that he's a pickpocket and a thief is not the smooth, charismatic, like troublemaker prankster that I was anticipating from the books. This is the kind of person who, yeah, would let a badger loose on the green to scare people, um, but he wouldn't necessarily do anything as malicious as full on stealing fencing the goods um it just doesn't jive matt's main characteristics should be smarmy he can turn on the charm on a dime and give it full like i'm gonna sidle up next to you because i'm charming and that'll help me get what i want out of you which leads to some good interactions with some of the other asa in the books like varen my personal favorite, who I'll probably bring up in every episode of this podcast. <laughs> um, and we get more background on Matt's family, too. It just seemed, I, I don't know, like, some of it, the stuff flowed really well in this episode. And some of the characteristics and character building. I didn't get his whole family's buildup because we really don't see anything come of it. Because, spoiler for the end of this episode, they leave. And they're not taking their families with them. So his mom being a drunk and his dad being a womanizer and... And his it, role trying to protect his two younger sisters. Like, it, they the, really dialed up... The drama factor. Yeah, in a way that I wasn't necessarily anticipating. I And I don't think we needed it. If you look at this episode from a 10,000-foot view. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to keep you going, and I feel they didn't need to add some of the facets into this episode to make us interested in the characters right off the bat, because we know that we're going to be following them the entire season. At the end of the episode, Moraine is like, you four, with me, let's go. And 
you get that setup that they're going on a journey together, that these are our main characters, we will be following them. So uh, to interject some of that stuff, I don't know if they're going to revisit it. Um, are, are these ripples? Do we see that maybe Matt follows one of his parents' paths in becoming a drunk or a womanizer? Is that what this is setting up? I'm not sure. And if if so, then yes, this was needed. I don't see how they're going to fit that in with everything else happening um, with all these characters. You have a lot of main characters. They set up a lot of people we need to care about in the show just in this episode. And contrary to the books where you get a larger party leaving Emmonsfield, the number of people leaving is smaller. They've sort of held off on introducing one character until episode three, Tom Marilyn the Gleeman. And Nenev is sort of taken out of the picture. And so she's not part... Well, she wasn't originally in the party, but she, her departure from the Two Rivers was a little bit different than how they're doing it in the show. Speaking of Nynaeve, or Nynaeve, or however we're going to pronounce that <laughs> name, and just to let you all know, there is a glossary in the back of the books. I tried to look her up. She's not in the glossary. Every other main character is listed in the glossary with a pronunciation guide. She's not back there. That is so shady, because she is so amazing like yeah. and it was interesting i do not necessarily like it when people applaud during movies in theaters but people did it for sure several times specifically for nynaeve and again again we're gonna go back and forth with our pronunciations because i have been repeating these names in my head for so long that it might take me a little while to reprogram myself to how the show is actually pronouncing it so we basically have an evening party that this rolls into. So they were in the inn. Egwene comes back. She's all scratched up, but she survived. And we're all really happy. Um, and then we have Lan and Moraine rolling in. And I thought it was odd that Nynaeve went for her knife when just a stranger. They don't know who they are. Just a stranger walks into the inn when everyone's in full party mode. And her hand immediately goes to her knife, which is very weird. It's a choice. And the show has definitely taken more of a darker tone. Like, it fits in with a lot of the, the comics, movies, like the current stage of where we're at with, with sci-fi fantasy. and fantasy. Yeah. Where it has to be, like, darker and grittier. Because the books start out with this festival, like, it is not a stormy night. <laughs> it is what everyone has been building up to there's going to be f the idea of having fireworks just amazes people that haven't been fireworks in 10 years there hasn't been a gleeman for who knows how long and they're still not a gleeman and they're so. still not a gleeman because it's dark and gritty um and moraine wanders in she's like yo we need some rooms and then she doesn't talk to anyone and just goes up to this fireplace and is like please don't bother me and granted did i start rereading this book on the trip yeah so i'm full of more details that um are now more fresh in my mind yeah they might have been buried for a while but i really liked how the books had done it as like here's this big festival everyone's excited oh and did you hear there are strangers it's a like, fancy woman so fancy that everyone keeps calling her Lady, and even though she is like, no, just call me Moraine, they're like, but Lady, mm, uh, more, but Moraine. And it sets it up as way more 
light, fanciful, like an exciting time rather than gloomy, dreary. Um, there's no big reveal of her role as a storied A.S. Today in the show. She just straight up drops it to she's like look at my ring can we get a room and she's like flashing this bling and um Egwene's mom is like oh yeah yes Moraine said I and then everyone's whispering in the tavern like do you know there's an Aesodai in here and it, I thought that it would be more like excited murmurs like oh my goodness she's so pretty have you ever seen anyone as glamorous as her and like instead it's just like who is this outsider? They must be very bizarre. Like how, I don't know, the the darkness, gloominess that sort of permeates the first few episodes is at more of a contrast with the books than I was anticipating. Because really, uh, I mean, there is a big battle in this episode, but it, I feel that we should be hopeful because everyone is going off at the end of the episode to do something great and figure out what's going on and how they can save really their hometown so i thought they would have painted the hometown we did get to see some glimpses of them preparing for this festival i thought they would have injected a bit more warmth and happiness so that we could see why it's worth saving from a storytelling perspective right um because As it is, it seems like it's one of those cycles where people don't necessarily... In the books, it's portrayed as people will pick themselves back up when some sort of disaster happens. They'll still help each other out. This gave it a more combative and less cooperative feel. Um, but I will say one of the things I appreciated was the town... They did a good job of showing how the town rallied to fight off the Trollocs. That... After the initial shock and after the initial, like, who are these monsters? These things are coming out of a storybook to kill us all. The town rallies. Um, You see people working together to take down these monsters, which look real good, by the way. Like, that was well done. Oof, yes. For how they match the book description. Because... And these are all all actors. These are stunt people. And during... uh, the screening they showed a couple behind the scenes things which you can find on amazon somehow um i'm still trying to figure out how to access the extra videos because it's not where they said it would be with the x-ray feature where you pop up a menu so far i've only found photo galleries and not the cool videos they've been promoting um but one of the cool videos that is hopefully out there and other people smarter than myself have found really describe how they constructed this final battle and they showed how these stun people prepared and they're on stilts yeah to get because the lore goes that one of the forsaken had basically created this mashup for these evil creatures as minions so there's part goat part horse part eagle part wolf mixed with man yes there's some human elements in it like it's not always just like it's not one part human to one part goat equals a trollic. It's like two-thirds wolf plus one part man plus a little bit of goat in there, too. Yeah, and maybe a beak. And a beak, yeah. Um, so they did a really good job with these trollocs, making them look terrifying, getting a little bit of the personality in... Uh, oh, that might be a little bit later on. Um, where they like to kill for fun, they are slightly lazy.
these monsters from story coming to life and attacking the villagers, it was nice that the villagers sort of harkened back to the historical roots where they fought off the Trollocs before um, the people in that region, which is a minor spoiler for episode two. So uh, to go back, we see a couple other glimpses. Perrin is married. What? Um, this this doesn't happen in the books, um, but he's married and his wife does not like to party. She's at the smithy doing her thing. She sounds like an excellent craftsperson. Like, yeah. She um, is there working. The things that she makes are beautiful and functional. Um, she seems like a great gal all around. Yeah. She also kicks some ass against the Trollocs as they attack the forge. Uh, but before we get there, so um, we're skipping ahead a little because we have... Land of Moraine, they get their room, and then they have some platonic tub time. So it looks like a very nice smelling bath, too. And you can see, like, they're not sexually involved. They're just having a bath together, which was nice to see that it wasn't really forced. It was just, oh, we've both been traveling a while. Hey, oh, this water is a little chilly, and she uses her her hand magic, and... Um, warms that tub up real quick. Which is a nice juxtaposition against the books where one of their interactions where they first bond involves icy pond water. So that was a nice sort of... What do you call it, an Easter egg? If it's the... Yeah. Harkens back to the opposite effect where Lana's like, warmer is better. Um, Yes. But as you were saying with their relationship, the bond sort of goes beyond sex and attraction like the yeah it's not an aesidae and a warder is deeper they sense what they're feeling greens those green sisters of the aesidae there's really no romance with the other ajas right greens will have multiple warders sometimes married to at least one if not more of them other ajas all have blue. orders, except for the reds. Except for the reds. Reds, no thank you, no to men. Um, but... They're more rare for other Ajas. Yeah. Like, grays, whites don't really have as much a need. Yellows, yeah. browns, maybe. Yeah. Like, a brown will just go keep making notes as whatever else is happening around her, so I can see them having a little bit more use for someone who can watch their back. Um, this moment of... A form of intimacy. That they are very close, they're just relaxing together, but it's not romantic intimacy. This, compared to what Rand and Egwene have, which I call a CW moment, this is written like it was straight out of Riverdale. I. It was bizarre. Like, I, we exchanged a look and maybe a little hand gesture of, what is this? It seemed unnecessary. Like, I feel like they could have played up the tension of, well, they won't they? Why do I feel this way around this person that goes back and forth? Yeah, I don't understand why we needed this when it, they had already made it clear that they had a thing for each other. And you don't need to really go deeper than that. The, 
again, I'm not sure if it will become a factor in the show or not, but I really didn't need the physical intimacy that they were having to believe that they really cared about each other and that they were meant for each other and pining for each other. There's a moment where Egwene says that Nenev has said, you could be my apprentice, um, which would mean that Egwene would not marry. Wisdoms do not marry. They don't have kids. They are sometimes chosen from villages farther away. And that it's a more solitary life. And for Egwene, she's like, that that position, that being able to be of service to her community is very appealing. So to weigh that against this emotional connection with Rand, and she still chooses the wisdom apprenticeship, like, they didn't need that physical intimacy to show us how difficult that decision would be. They had built it up in other ways, like the berries, and just talking about, oh, a grain is here, Rand, har har, wink wink, nudge nudge. Yeah, it... And uh, even when it came down to, oh, you two can take care of the dishes, everyone knows that they hold a candle for the other, and that 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 was all it needed to be. It was very... It would have made it more fun if they hadn't, and if they were awkward around yeah. each other, because then it's like, har har, you two that are left have to hang out with each other, good luck not being awkward. Like, that would have been entertaining for those uh for the parents leaving to be like har har gentle ribbing of this relationship they didn't necessarily need to dive all the way in yeah if if any moment felt really shoehorned in i would say this is it i didn't need it i don't think they're going to need it for the storytelling later on because i i don't know if they're going to revisit this i mean and they don't if they do, I don't think it'll be necessary. I think that throughout this episode, Egwene made her decision. She shouldn't have to revisit this decision to apprentice to become a wisdom and to be alone. They shouldn't have to let her agonize over that. Like, girl made a decision, she committed, and that should be applauded, and left alone and respected. They don't need this constant, or this threat of constant second-guessing, like, oh, what if I had gone with Rand? Oh, Rand. She's not a character that deserves to be pining for someone. Yeah. I think all the characters are strong in their own right in the books, and this sort of undercuts her strength, that it was a, a difficult decision for her to make, and then there's the weird guilt that she's being put through by Rand. Um, And granted, Rand is not really the greatest character that you feel empathy for. Like, for a lot of this, he's sort of whiny. He doesn't listen when he should be, which makes me sound a lot like Nynaeve, talking about the village council and the men not having a full set of wits amongst them. And maybe they'll switch up that character in the show. Um, Because you've had a chance to really analyze these characters for years and years, so uh, I mean, he doesn't really become likable until towards the end of the books for me. Like but, he, I I never really liked him. But maybe they're obviously this is a TV show, and they you, have to make you like him. You have to have a likable 
lead character, and even though this is an ensemble cast, he's one of those lead characters and you can't really write one of them off um, as being someone who's insufferable, that you just have to tolerate. Um, Absolutely not forgive that. Yes, that's true. The celebration is continuing into the next day, and we get a peddler arriving. His name is Patton Fane, and he... uh, with his interactions with Matt, already seems real skeezy. I, he does not seem like a nice person. He sort of knows that he holds the cards in some respect. Like people in the Two Rivers don't get out, and so for a peddler who travels around, I, he gets to be that person that has all the news, has all the stories of the outside world and what's going on. Um, it was curious that Perrin was the one who knew about the war in Galdan with the false dragon. Um, yeah, how'd they get that news? It traveled through some other merchant person. I guess. Um, but Padden Fane, like that was should have been part of his build-up and how he covets that role of having all the cards and having all the knowledge that people are like, what's happening? And so we see him, he obviously knows that he's buying stolen goods from Matt. And it doesn't sound like it's the first time this has happened. No. He knows what questions to ask, like, can I sell this in this village? And he reads through Matt and tries to basically bargain him down. Um, Like, you're handing me something that's too hot to sell. Why, like, you are not getting as much money as you want out of this thing. Yeah, it's really digging a hole. Again, for Matt's character, he the it's such a weird balance that they're striking with him in this episode, where he's really good and helping his sisters and really caring about his family, but then he's stealing and selling things to this peddler and um, trying to get good money out of it so he can gamble again. So I don't really know why the writers chose some of these threads to pick up on rather than like full smarmy rakish charm that should be matt's it's his calling card yeah um then we get a naive origin story as she is scrubbing this sacred pool rock which fine sort of like if there was a reason why it was sacred beyond it's a sacred cave um like, it doesn't necessarily fit into the whole mythos and world. I I think it gives her something to do, though, to show that she's not one to take a day off to celebrate. Everyone else is in full party mode. They probably have some hangovers going on after the night they just had. So they probably have a slow start, and they're preparing for this festival. So it it's a multi-day sort of thing the night coming up seems like the capstone to it but she's out there working hard and the story is compelling it's not as full as what's presented in the books which makes sense like we knew that some stuff would be cut away um where instead Nineveh seems orphaned and raised by the previous wisdom and the pre- previous wisdom had gone to the White Tower to try to be an Aes Sedai and was rejected because she was poor, which is not consistent with a lot of the things in the books, especially when we meet Shiwan Sanch, 
the Amarillin seat who raises to become the highest of yeah, all she is today. She is like the head of it. And um, she was a fisherman's daughter. Yeah. Hashtag so, spoiler. And it doesn't track with some of the background in history with Aes Sedai, where they used to have tons of people trying to get in. It was so competitive that they had these different classes where you're a novice and then you're an accepted, and then you're a full sister. And they still do, but the numbers of people have yeah. dwindled in recent years. Like, they have so many open bedrooms, it's not even funny. So There's room at that inn. There is, and they take in even girls that they know won't really do much of anything. They, they say, oh, they're not going to make a past being a novice. She can't channel anything worth anything we can't teach her anything well they teach them enough to survive right and not kill themselves with the power but then so this undercuts some of the backstory that i was really hoping for because nanave's discussion with moraine later on in the books is so great that um it's revealed that nanave is not the previous wisdom's first apprentice that the previous one was also a wilder could channel the power but was destroyed by it essentially and so that's the risk that wilders take like if you don't go to the tower to learn to control it you only have a 25 chance 25 percent chance of surviving and so that piece of lore is missing it gives the impression that Nynaeve already knows that she can channel if she can listen to the wind because that was what led the previous wisdom to go to the tower was that she could listen to the wind. It yeah. Just... The Aes Sedai are being set up as like the 1% and they're super exclusive and it's a super secret club that um, people know how to get into even when it comes to the two rivers the previous wisdom walked there for months and months and months and was rejected and had a sad girl walk back. It, I don't know. I, they made the two rivers more worldly than it was presented in the books. And it gives Nynaeve too much information at first. Like, it should be a big reveal that she can channel, that she can be one of the strongest... Um, and even after the first few episodes, we haven't gotten that moment with her where her world sort of comes down all around her, um, where in the books it's presented as she is so angry and so upset and again, so angry as one of her trademark features. She wants revenge and the only way that she can see to get vengeance on Moraine is by becoming an Aes Sedai, by, by learning the power so she can really stick it to him. And that part, that path doesn't seem like it's going to be revealed. It's going to happen through different motivations, through different events. Um, but that, what was a defining feature, won't be present as much. We, speaking of the wind and listening to it, we then see Egwene and Nynaeve on a bridge, uh, listening to the wind, and uh, Nynaeve's trying to teach Egwene to just listen to it, and the message the wind is giving is basically Whoopi Goldberg from Ghosts, like, you in danger, girl. But Nynaeve doesn't know. Like, she... Egwene can tell that something is happening, which is great. 
not her skill set in the books. Um, but Nynaeve, instead of being like, there's a storm coming or we should have had better weather and it's not, like she should know what's happening with the weather. She should know what's happening with the wind. But her saying like, I don't know, I, it makes her not as powerful as I was hoping she would have been presented as. Moraine is still in the inn. She's doing some professional level creeping from her stained glass window, looking at the the bromance triumvirate, having some ale outside a picnic table. Um, of course, it is olden times or future olden times where you can't really see clearly through some glass, but she has nothing better to do than stare. I did, I did prefer the book approach where she's talking to everyone, like asking lots of questions. They say, who is this highborn lady? She's so fancy. Why does she care about lowly people like us? We're not highborn or fancy or important. And instead, she's just watching, just creeping. And the guys, I think this was their pregame because then we head into full-fledged party time and what a party. There is some line dancing. I do like a good organized round dance. Like, I loved it for Voulez-Vous in Mamma Mia. I liked it in this one. It was a really nice moment. Until someone gets, like, a spear through their throat. In front of Egwene. Like, yeah, that's traumatizing. And then we enter into this full-fledged battle um, where everyone is scattered and running. We see all of our league characters reacting in different ways. Rand at this point is back on the farm with his dad and we did have some lantern lighting. There was some lantern lighting. That was nice. Yes. And it sort of sets up some mother issues for Rand. Um, but in the Trollocs should, according to the books, be focused on sort of three locations. Matt's house, the farm, the forge where our three main bros are, um, but they're just going straight in on the crowd. Major points for Nynaeve and Egwene for keeping their heads. They're trying to do some first aid, some triage, as this battle is happening all around them. So that tracks with them being full, awesome, amazing characters who can keep their heads, who can start to problem solve as this chaos, this pandemonium is happening all around them. Yeah, and then Nynaeve is snatched by her braids and dragged off unceremoniously by a Trolloc. In the midst of all this, um, we see everyone else battling. The women's circle attacks a Trolloc with a bunch of pitchforks. Which is on brand for the book and is pretty amazing. Um... Matt is saving his sisters. Again, it's this weird balance they're trying to strike with his morals. Um, like, is he shady? Is he virtuous? Like, apparently they're making him swing like a pendulum between those two extremes rather than sort of coasting in the schmarmy charm avenue that I was hoping that he would. Perrin and his wife Layla are battling a Trolloc in the forge and um, then Perrin kills his wife, um, which adds a wrinkle to his character because he doesn't necessarily tell anyone. And he, so in addition to being surprised that he was married, 
there were gasps in the theater <laughs> with the other fans as that fact was revealed. It sets up his character as like with this guilt complex, and it because it happened in the heat of the moment. Maybe that's how they portray how he, in the books, he was always so careful because he knew that he was bigger and stronger than everyone else and didn't want to hurt anyone. And maybe this is their way of portraying, like, in the heat of the moment, he killed the woman he loved, and therefore, moving forward, he'll be super careful with his actions and moving through crowds, even. It did not seem... It's an interesting way for them to manifest his character that I was not expecting them to. Yeah, especially considering he's the same age as Matt and Rand. Him being the one who married young and obviously had a stable home life at that point. Um, it looked like he was the blacksmith rather than an apprentice, um, as is portrayed in the books. So it looked like he was the mature one. But then this terrible mistake happened in the heat of battle. We'll see where it goes. Um, at the same time, Rand and his dad are attacked on the farm by a single Trolloc. And uh, this is different from the books because a whole band attacked that farm. And Tam held them off. Like, he made swift work of the first few that tried to come in through the front door. And in this case, it's one that he can barely fend off. And this is someone who has been trained in the use of the sword, which is a shock to Rand, um, who was not expecting a farmer from the Two Rivers to know how to wield a sword that's not something that would ever yeah, be like needed. Yeah, like a sword really, really isn't a thing in the Two Rivers. No one has a sword before this one is revealed during this incident. There's no need for it. And Tam can clearly use it, but for you to have a heron-marked blade means you are a master sword person and for him to struggle against one Trolloc didn't do his character service I feel I mean great fight scene great that Rand was still able to kill the Trolloc which is something that happens in the book but only after he goes back to the house to get some medicines for his dad um, the idea that he has to get his father to the two rivers is true they just condensed it so much it just would have been better, I feel, to help build up the Heron Mark blades if Tam was a little bit more effective with it. We see Moraine and Lan working together as a team. Which to... is beautiful. Yes, the choreography of this fight scene is fantastic. We see them working as a true partnership. So going back to their intimacy, just as individuals they know one one another so well that they can really dance around each other to pull off a great success in this battle even though moraine does totally wreck the inn which is a thing um it's revealed in the books that fire and earth are not her strong suits her she's much more water air spirit during their escape in the book, she creates a fog, and she says, not without some pride, rightfully so, that there are not many women in the tower who could do what she just did, let alone from horseback. Like, that's a line that stands out in my head from the very first time I read this book, of how awesome she is. But she's more awesome with certain elements rather than others. That said, as much as I was annoyed by how slow 
the weaving was and how varied it was. Like, girl, your fire bolts were great. Like, just keep doing that is what I wanted to, <laughs> is what I wanted to say. <laughs> but it does do a service for a viewer, especially a new viewer, of saying, like, here are all the things that an ASDI can do. Like, they're wondrous and miraculous. Like, she can reach up into the clouds and pull down lightning. She can rip stones out of the walls. Which is a thing. Yeah. We thought it, I thought it was more of a lost art when we learn about the Stone of Tear. Um, but her, she kicks ass. Like, yeah, it's a great range of what she can do to show off the might of what it is that for a woman to channel the power more than just heating up a tub. Yes. And that really finishes off the battle for the evening. She does take a wound. Yes. She rolled that dice and it came up with a, a hit against her. Yes. Um, but she bounces, she's, it sort of shows how well the Aesidae can sort of control themselves and like not react to things as much um she takes this hit and then just keeps on kicking ass so then we cut to the next morning rand is bringing his dad tam back into town tam is really hurt by this trollock poison that was on the weapons um or their mouth did he get bit it was a it was a weapon, which is true to the book. Okay. And also to the book, like, Moraine is pretty spent. Um, it's... And the books, it's only from channeling. Her knife wound doesn't exist in the books. But it does do a good job of showing how spent she is. That in healing Tam, it takes a lot out of her. We had a little bit more detail in the books of how the strength sort of the engine for healing mostly comes from the person being healed, but it also takes a lot out of the person doing it. And healing is one of healing capital H is one of the talents that Moraine has. She's pretty good at it. Maybe not a yellow, but clearly could have been. Sure. And then we basically smash into the end of this episode, setting up the next one where we get some history from Moraine, sort of why she's on this quest, is that 20 years ago there was an Aes Sedai with milky white eyes that couldn't see anything, who's like, yo, the dragon's been reborn, we need to find he or she, and um, that's why Moraine is out in the world. I don't think it does service to the orange... It vaguely tracks with the books. It's not the full-fledged story behind it, which I really liked why she and Shawan sort of take these two different paths, but it's the same mission. Um, and the, I, I don't see why they relied on this trope for someone with a foretelling, especially because eventually we'll meet someone who has a touch of the foretelling, capital F, very rare talent, which that woman uses to her advantage to get sort of the best positions uh, because foretelling is so rare but it's not it doesn't require this weird this different approach to someone's yeah and someone being a seer in fantasy they're always blind they always have white eyes I don't think that we need that detail we... and it doesn't track with what is required of an ASDI like to pass the test to be able to channel well, granted it, in there's a lot of 
in addition to the books being very gendered, um, which doesn't necessarily leave a lot of space for people who are trans or non-binary to see themselves in it, which is really annoying. Um, but it is to some extent a little bit ableist. Like mm. if you are blind, it doesn't quite, those powers don't quite make sense. Yeah. Um, like you, uh, so from that aspect, I do like that they included the fact that a blind person could have these powers. Yes. Um, and by these powers, I mean being an Aes Sedai. I would have really liked it not to be the stereotypical trope, the trope of a blind person having the ability to see the future that or see what else is going on it just i didn't need that detail it seemed unnecessary in the tale that we're being told right and grant i don't want to spoil too much because that story happens later on in the books where we get this background um but it is really good and i don't in the trailer when maureen says this is not the mission i would have chosen is very true um, it just doesn't, it sets it up in a strange way that I don't think it gets the, f as great a moment in the books as it could be. So, uh, this is really setting up Moraine to say, you four, because, uh, Nynaeve is gone. She's been dragged away. But she said, you four need to come with me. One of you all is the dragon reborn. It was nice that they included grain in this and that the dragon could be reborn as a man or a woman yes that helped i think get rid of some of the weird gender things that exist in the books the dichotomy but it doesn't necessarily make up for at the beginning where leandrin is saying that the power is only for like men don't have any business doing this and that men broke the world through their own arrogance rather than a consequence of fighting a war and locking up the Dark One. Right. And all four of them, except for Matt, where he basically says this is ridiculous, um, even so, he and the others just jump on their horses. We see no one really saying goodbye to anyone. We just smash cut to them being like, yeah, sure, let me not grab any luggage. Uh I wonder if there's a cut scene or cut scenes where they are saying goodbye to their families. How We didn't even see how they explained this to anyone in the village, aside from them jumping on horses and riding through the people. And they are quick to leave because they see 300 Trollocs coming down the mountainside. And they're near enough where you can spot, like, fairly sizable torches. And you, it might build into the idea that there's a Myrdral that has bound the Trollocs. It would have been nice to set up for the next episode, especially, that that had happened. Otherwise, those Trollocs would have been like, hmm, this burning village, I bet there's more to eat there. It, I don't think they would have not been distracted by the presence of potential food. Yeah, and it, that was my big question at the end of this episode. So they're leaving because they know that the Trollocs are after one of them, that... They are targets. But did they just leave everyone in their village to die? We do not have an answer to that question. We don't. Which I think they could have had a maybe a throwaway line of, for them, the only way that they could have come down from the mountains is if they used the ways. The only way they could have used the ways was if the Myrdral had bound them 
to yeah. its will. Or even rolling it back to something simpler, a throwaway line of, if we ride right now, we will draw them away from this village. They, or that. It, it could have been as simple as that. The way it's left is, hey, peace out. You know, we just, you know, won this battle for you all with your help. But, you know, the power really accentuated our victory. But we're peacing out now. So you see that horde coming down? Best of luck. Try to slow them down so they don't catch up to us. Thanks. I did like the implication that Egwene's mother and not father was the mayor and had a different, more pronounced role rather than like best baker in the village. That was kind of cool. But as you said, the lack of preparation as they leave, Egwene's mom totally would have been the kind of person who was pragmatic enough to be like, here's this, here's dried meat, here's dried fruit, like, here are all the supplies that you will need. You'll, like, goodbye, but also I understand why you're doing this. Here are all the supplies that you may need. They did not play the Oregon Trail where they got to outfit themselves when they left. No, they they really didn't. They did not load up on their foodstuffs and their rifle bullets. Um, so, uh, each episode we are going to pick a Woolhead of the Week. So, Woolhead is the term in the two rivers that is for someone who is just being a total dunce about something. And I'm sad they didn't introduce that as a term within the TV series yet. But hopefully it's coming. Because it oftentimes gets applied to Rand, rightfully so. So uh, we are each going to throw out our pick for Woolhead of the Week, just someone who is making a ridiculous choice or a bad decision um so philip who is your woolhead of the week my woolhead of the week is nynaeve and this woman's circle hazing that they have going on no one needs that how how are you protecting these people as you throw them into the river it that there are just so many questions that that drew for me i get that it's a manifestation of this metaphor but it mm, it just did not sit right my woolhead of the week is probably Perrin we see him going to town on this troll lock as he's murdering it um, it really reminded me of Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest with a wire hanger He just going after the troll lock and then he swings back around and hits his wife and he was obviously in some sort of mania, just trying to neutralize this threat. But come on, you you knew that there was only one target that both of you were battling. You knew your wife was behind you and would probably scream if there was another troll lock or you'd hear something. He was just so caught up in the moment that he <laughs> murdered his wife. Uncharacteristically caught up in the moment. Yeah, it was... a. Uh, Ba obviously a bad decision. And I really hope they don't try to tie that into another aspect of his character, which I will not spoil because I'm trying to be really good about that. And I'm sure that not only myself, but our listeners are appreciative of that as well. So um, do you have any last hot takes for this episode? The weaving of the power was great. I think it's a great starting point. For them to show off what can be done with it. Um, the nimbus of light surrounding someone who can channel was great. 
I would love it if they would mention that no one else can see what mm-hmm. it is that an ASA is weaving, except for another woman who can channel. Not even a guy who can channel can see it. They're very separate in that way. You'd only be able to see what was happening with both halves of the power if you were linked. So I thought that was a good setup and it's a great launch point for here's a basic introduction. If they can take it in a lot of ways, that will be fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this season. They've released all but one of the episode titles, and it, it sort of can give you an idea, but I I looked at the episode titles, you've looked at the episode titles. It doesn't tell you a whole lot of what's going on. They're keeping it vague intentionally, which I can appreciate. And it's clear that they're condensing things in the books because they have to make a tv show it has to fit within an episode length and so i'm curious to see how they combine what they omit what they build in what they can build back in that i was really looking forward to in this first episode but for an intro for a world builder for a way to hook people into the series i thought it did a pretty good job yeah we hope that you all are enjoying the series so far Keep tuned to our podcast. We're going to be covering every episode. So this first week we got three episodes. So you are going to get three episodes of us coming out. um, One per uh, TV episode. And then we will be here weekly giving you a rundown of what went on. Sort of some of the other things that we noticed didn't happen or were changed. And... Yeah, keep it locked and keep the comments coming. We want to hear from you. What did you think about this episode? You got our two takes. What's yours? All right, until next time, we will see you all later.